Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 59. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing um, pretty good, except for the subject matter we're going to talk about. So I can't be like, oh, I'm all happy and perky, because we're going to talk about death. Anyway. Mm. Oh, we're going to talk about the science of the Grim Reaper? The angel of death? If you like. (laughs) Chills up my spine. The science of Halloween and haunted movies. No, it's much worse than that. I've missed you. Uh, it's been a couple of days since I saw you at the office. Yes. You had a road trip, right? Um, no, actually, I've just been working half days from home this week. A little special treat. Cool. Yep, no road trips yet. My first one is in August, going up to the Finger Lakes region of New York for pastor's conference and homeschool conference. And then the schedule starts back again, and we shall be traveling a lot. My new manager has been out of the office for traveling this past weekend, and he had a couple of days off because he was working on the weekend. So I haven't really had a chance to really work with my manager yet. I'm looking forward to the time when I can. Huh. Then my old manager, and I guess he was your old manager too, maybe, maybe not, the COO of the business, he is now on the board. So you heard it from me. Well, cool. 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 And this is the person who moved to California. That's right. That's right. All right. Yeah. So we're talking about the same person. Yes. I miss him a lot. But this is Equinox. This is not a product of the ministry. No. You had an interesting story in here that I wanted to get your take on because this is something that comes up every year with new smartphones. And that is that, Rob, we don't care for the camera bumps on the back of our phones. That's right. And this, so this article really piques my interest. What is this about? Well, I don't quite understand it fully. And if people click on the link, they'll be treated to what sounds like a press release more than a scientific explanation. But basically what these people have done is they've made a metamaterial that bends light differently than glass. And they can morph it such that you can take a large lens and replace it with a thin metamaterial. And they're calling it a space plate and say uh, something in the size of a smartphone camera. Yeah. This is really interesting. I love this concept. Yeah. I hope it works. I hope it's got good clarity and stuff like that. But right now, every lens system, you, you need two lenses and there's always a space in between them and they get rid of that space and they might get, even get rid of a lens or two. So they can take the entire optical system that, you know, we've been working on this for hundreds of years, figuring out how to make microscopes and cameras and telescopes better. And all of a sudden, bam, a new material that no one ever has seen before comes on the scene and uh, cameras might get a lot smaller and a lot lighter. So the idea is that the, the space plate isn't any larger per se than a lens itself in the camera on the phone. So if you can change the space plate's properties, then you don't need a telescopic lens so the, that the, the glass element moves farther from the camera sensor. And so by manipulating the space plate, it's as though the lens were at a greater distance from the sensor, even when it's not. Yes. In one sense, it would be sort of like putting water between the two lenses. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. So instead of going from air to a lens to air to a lens to your eyeball or to a, a, a photo detector, it would go from air to a lens to water to a lens. But it's not really like that. It's an example of the kind of tech that you think shouldn't be possible. Yes. Right until the moment that it becomes possible. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, of course. And this <laughs> is just something that exists in the world now. Yeah. It's, um, it's not air to glass to water to glass because... 
water only has one refractive index. This material, they tweak the refractive index somehow, depending upon where you are in the material or something like that. And it's just a fascinating idea. And it's just really, I mean, I can imagine, you know, a, a three foot, a 15 foot diameter metamaterial space plate instead of, oh, that'd be awesome. Like the Palomar Observatory. Yeah. Because what is limiting yeah. observatories, you, you just can't pour pieces of glass bigger than they currently pour them. And so they may now make them out of honeycomb shapes. Yeah. And, and things like that. But they just might be able to put this weird stuff down and kind of morph it so that they can focus light in weird new ways and make awesome telescopes. Hmm. Very cool story. What's really funny is that microscope technology, it hasn't improved dramatically since the 1800s. Oh, of course. Even Charles Darwin was able to see cytoplasmic streaming. So he's focusing to the inside of a cell and he's seeing little things in the cell move around. Hmm. And so basically they were approaching the limits of optical clarity using visible light in the 1800s. Now, light sources have improved. Now we have lasers and we have very sensitive uh, video cameras now and all sorts of things like that. But the glass themselves, we've kind of improved the anti-reflective coatings and and things like that. And we've solved a couple problems of, of chromatic aberration a little bit better, but they were already working on this. And they already had 95% of the problem fixed by the end of the 1800s. So it's been well over 100 years since a revolution in optics has happened. Hmm. Yeah. Very interested to see where that goes next. Yeah. So in other stories, we have South African worker honeybees reproduce by making near-perfect clones of themselves. Yeah. Weird. So is this so this is just unique to South African honeybees or just the honeybee type in general? Well, it's unique to the South this particular species in South Africa, but it makes me wonder how often this happens in other places because I we know from conversations we've had on this podcast that even the honeybees that, that beekeepers in America use, if the workers don't have enough of that queen pheromone, you might get a worker starting to lay eggs. But she's never been fertilized, so she can only lay drones. Hmm. But what would it take? <laughs> Whatever happened in the South African honeybees, what would it take for that to happen in some other honeybee species? I don't know because I don't know the genetics of it because they're just figuring this out. They're like, wait a minute, these guys. And it's not just clones. There are a lot of things that can go through parthenogenesis, insects specifically, a couple of fish, but there will be chromosomal recombination. And so the daughters that are produced are actually recombined versions of the mother. They're not exactly clones, but these actually will reproduce without any recombination. So basically, a cell develops into an egg cell, which then develops into an adult. Wow. Yeah, weird, 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 weird. And like, you know, hundreds of millions of times. And it's been this one clone has been going on for like 30 or 40 years. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. But there's still a queen and the queen still does the queen thing. But the workers themselves, they just kind of do their own things. What a weird dynamic. That is unusual. Genetics huh. is so strange, man. Just just strange. Every time we think we figure out genetics, uh, we get a, a curveball. And it's like, wait a minute. That's not supposed to be true. Yeah, by the time that this episode goes out, uh, I actually did an article podcast for the ministry, speaking of genetics and weird things, about inbreeding of the genes of like plant-based, you know, seeds uh, for agriculture, all the produce where, you know, you make the perfect ideal strawberry for the market, but you've basically hybridized and inbred strawberries to make the largest red strawberries you can make so that they will sell in the market. And you have been selecting genes 
with that in mind and discounting genes that concern flavor. So, yes. You know, the strawberries today don't taste as good as your grandfather's strawberries. Yes. Give me a red, mushy strawberry with a good flavor, not one of those red, hard ones that don't taste good. Yeah, just give me- I don't want a big strawberry. I want a medium-sized strawberry. I don't need a giant one. Yeah, just give me three medium strawberries that taste yeah. amazing instead yeah. of the one ginormous one that doesn't taste any good. But- Consumers see the big perfect one and they'll buy that and leave the nice tasting, not perfect one. Yeah. <laughs> Huge mistake. This is human nature and this is driving driving the loss of so much flavor. So like just tomatoes too. I mean, growing up, my mother never bought tomatoes at the grocery store. She either raised them herself or she bought them at a farm stand. I remember those tasting the best too. Yeah. And I don't even like tomatoes. I hate tomatoes. Not really. Yeah. Crazy stories. Well, I'll put that article podcast into the show notes as well, alongside of the story about the cool. honeybees. That is a good one. Cool. And that wasn't even Beequinox. Hmm. Giant arc stretching 3.3 billion light oh, years man. across the cosmos oh, <laughs> shouldn't exist. What? Yeah. There's actually two things that, that I, I flagged this week about large things in the universe that are kind of making us say, uh... <laughs> I love that the like the subtitle of this article is how big is too big. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now we found big things before. The Great Wall is a massive wall of galaxies that's just a little too big and other structures, but this was something that's they say is 3.3 billion light years across and it simply shouldn't be there for two two reasons. One is, well it must have formed pretty early after the Big Bang and the Big Bang model. And they didn't have 3.3 billion years for gravity to accumulate a structure like that because it's all gravitationally linked. Uh, and second, and here's a kicker, it violates the Copernican principle. Whoa. Which is one of the fundamental assumptions under the Big Bang. And that is there's no special place in the universe. It doesn't matter where you go in the universe. It pretty much all looks the same <laughs> on a large scale. So... Galaxies should be spread out pretty much evenly. Even if there's clusters of galaxies, they shouldn't be clusters of clusters of clusters. There shouldn't be 3.3 billion light year clusters of galaxies because that means that there's significant other places where there's nothing. It's too lumpy. We're not supposed to have a lumpy universe. That, yeah. that changes the way the whole Big Bang model works and it would change the the lumpiness and the cosmic background microwave radiation that you would see, it changes all these things and it's not supposed to be there. Yeah, it says in the lifescience.com article, the epic arrangement called the giant arc consists of galaxies, galactic clusters, and lots of gas and dust. It is located 9.2 billion light years away and stretches across roughly a 15th of the observable universe. That's a pretty good percentage. Uh, a 15th, yeah. I think uh, what's a... Uh, uh, 15, 60, uh, 360, say 15, 36, that's four. What is that? One, uh, 124th of the whole entire sky? Yeah, no, no, it's one like 15th of the whole sky, but all right, I don't know. <laughs> I can't do the math in my head while I'm talking, even though the math is easy. I just, I flipped something over upside down. Anyway, it's a large piece of the sky. If you think of the sky as a circle, it covers a 15th of the circle. Yeah. It's just too much. <laughs> they go on to say some research has suggested that structures should reach a certain size and then be unable to get larger 
Instead, we just keep finding these bigger and bigger structures. Yeah. That is awesome. When you realize that the Big Bang is based upon assumption. The assumptions might be valid, but it's based upon assumption. Wait a second. What if they're not valid? You know, have we actually tested those assumptions? And now this is one of the assumptions they're testing. It's like, well, whoops. (laughs) Yeah. So there's another article I flagged on a similar line. And I just read this today. And I'm like, what? So the, not this particular giant arc that we just talked about, but the other largest structures in the universe is chains of galaxies. They rotate, but they rotate like if you put a pencil in your hand and spun it long way. What? Not like a, not really? like a helicopter, not like a head, don't helicopter the pencil, but spin it so that the point and the eraser don't move. And it's just, you see yellow five, yellow five, yellow five, yellow five, as you spin it along its long axis. <laughs> it's like what on earth and these things are massively long and thin they looked at the redshift of all these these structures and they did a very fine scaled analysis of the redshift and they said wait a minute the ones on this side are moving away from us and the ones on this side are coming toward us this thing is rotating dun 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 so again another violation of some of the basic big bang assumptions and a really cool result. And it took supercomputers to do this. No one ever would have noticed this by eye. Wow. But what? <laughs> it rotated? I remember once I asked a uh, physicist, I said, I know that the moon goes around the earth and the earth goes around the sun. The sun goes around the galaxy and the galaxy goes around the, the local galaxy. I said, is the entire universe rotating? And he looked at me and he said, that's a great question. People have debated that. We can't tell. So what do you mean you can't tell? He goes, we only have the light coming to us from where our object was when it released the light. We don't know if that object's moving or not. Oh. Uh, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the universe could literally have these large-scale structures that we cannot detect. But this is one particular one we did detect, and it's just really, really slick. There's actually another thing that I just remembered that I came across this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, another violation of a basic assumption, and that is the one of the biggest basic assumptions of molecular biology. Oh. And that is that DNA is turned into RNA, which is turned into protein. Wait, that's a pretty important foundational principle right there you're threatening. (laughs) It's called the central dogma of molecular biology. DNA is turned into RNA, which is turned into protein. And what they just realized is there's a polymerase that we've known about for a long time. And we also know there's these things called reverse transcriptase that will take RNA and change it into DNA. We've known that for a long time. But this one particular polymerase is better at it than reverse transcriptase. It takes RNA and turns it into DNA. Wow. That is not supposed to be true. Okay. I mean, what if you have an RNA virus that you get infected by? Oh, well, maybe you can turn it into DNA and store it in your nucleus. Or what if as RNA is being produced in your body and different RNAs are produced under different conditions. Well, what if that RNA is reverse transcribed into DNA and restored again? That means you're changing your genome. Dude. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And so (laughs) it it, it raises a fantastic number of questions. And I don't know where this is going to go. It might be, oh yeah, it happens, but really rarely. Or it might be like, oh, the whole central dogma needs to be thrown out because we were totally wrong. We'll see. Interesting story. Well, I'm not expecting a a revolution. And if it is, I'm expecting people to drag their feet. Yeah. But who knows? This this might have changed something in some dramatic way. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. 
man, already we've gotten our money's worth, Rob. That was incredible. These stories were some of the best. So everything we thought we knew was true, isn't. Yet again, people. <laughs> so I don't know why. I am an iconoclast. <laughs> I love destroying scientific theories. I, I rejoice in the ones that are solid. I mean, you, you know me. After all this time of talking, I'm like, this is great. This is so cool. But the ones that need to die, I love killing them. Well, the other thing I've noticed about your what you're passionate about, you really are frustrated when you feel like you get to the bottom of the barrel of what's to be discovered in a field of science. And you want to discover, oh, wait, no, there's more. Reach farther down and into the well for science. Well, you know, there's, there were people in the late 1800s saying that there's nothing left to be discovered. What did they know? A lot of people. This was, like, this was a topic of conversation. They had no idea. See, what happened was all of the major fields had been laid down. All the major scientific laws, most of the major discoveries, except maybe radioactivity, which was discovered in the late 1800s. But you know, those sorts of things, the big picture was there. What they didn't realize was how all the details that were going to be filled in over time, incrementally, little discovery here, little discovery here, little discovery there, how they're going to add together to make things like cell phones and computers and medicine. And then some radical new discoveries like some of the things we just talked about that no one expected. So uh, I'm glad I wasn't a prophet in the late 1800s. I don't think I would have predicted anything. Mm. The guys in the 1950s, though, sci fi writers, they got everything right except for aliens. <laughs> Ray guns Impressive. and spaceships and, I mean, you name computers, you name yeah. it, communicators. Uh-huh. They, they had it right. It's just the alien part was wrong. That's impressive. But the 1950s were before we got laser guns and lightsabers. So, yeah, that we're good. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is a great appetizer for all the things we're going to get into for the main topic. I hope so. And part of this discussion we already had was on purpose. Because what we thought we knew about the Black Death, most of it's wrong. And most of the things you think you know that you learned in school probably aren't right. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about when we actually figured out what was happening, you'd be like, what? It was that late? So, all right, let's go. Okay. So, this week's topic is the Black Death or the plague. Yes, the plague. You have to say it like that with a gravelly voice. The plague. <laughs> the plague. <laughs> Well, take us back to the beginning. Why did the Black Plague happen or when did it start and how did we take notice? Okay, that's not an easy question to answer. That's the the weirdness of history is that not everything used to be recorded. Nobody has climate change data in the 1300s. Uh, Actually, we do. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's just climate change data. Some people think that the Little Ice Age might have been triggered by the massive die-off of humanity in the 1300s. (laughs) Wow. I don't think that's true, but wow. Hey, you know, if you reduce the world population by half or a third, um, that's going to have an ecological effect. I mean, reforestation happened on a massive scale across Europe because you had half the number of people. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And all sorts of weird things. Okay. We had this thing called, we now call it the Black Death. They didn't call it that. They called it all sorts of different things, but the Black Death is a late invention but it's, it's kind of something we are familiar with. So we can use the phrase the Black Death. We also call it the plague. And, you know, pick a country and pick an acronym or a, a nickname. And there's probably a dozen different things that they called it. But put yourself in this position, right? You're in 1300s. You know 
that there's rumors of some really bad malady out there. Which wouldn't be the first time. Oh, no, man. People got sick and died all the time. You had smallpox, you know, all sorts of things are still floating around. And, you know, you had outbreaks. And then you had, like, you know, food poisoning on mass scales and things like that. And, and, and things are just uncontrollable. And nobody knew what caused disease. Was it a witch? Was it vapors? <laughs> Hence, influenza is influence. That's what the word means, as in the influence of the swamp, <laughs> the influenza. There's more than one disease that's named after air and bad air because <laughs> we didn't know. Wow. This, this, this plague thing that they knew it was coming. They had heard about it in the Crimea. In other words, the Europeans had heard about it happening in the Mongol lands, in the Crimea and Eastern places. Just a vague thing. But there were some, I think it was Genoese uh, from Genoa, traders on the Crimea and had this little town of their own. And they were besieged by some Turkic Mongolian sort of peoples, some ta- Tatars. And they were dying outside the city. And they were catapulting bodies into the city, dead bodies, to try to give them the disease too. And of course, they got the disease also, but oh. it probably didn't come from the bodies. Mm. It could have come from rats scurrying in and out of the city right. or you know, who knows what it came from. But they caught it. They went to Constantinople on the south side of the Black Sea because the Crimea is on the north side of the Black Sea. People estimate 90% of Constantinople might have died. Wow. wow. Yeah. And that, you know, that affects world history after that in a huge way. And then from there, some ships went to Sicily and a whole, you know, a fleet of ships, dozen or so. And when they arrived, almost every one of those ships was dead. And boom, it got into Sicily, it got into Italy, it got into France, and it went northward. And chroniclers have been able to document how fast this spread. They can literally go from town to town to town to town and look at the records and say, okay, they arrived in here on April the 5th. Wow. And arrived in this town on November the 2nd. That is insane. In fact, I included the map. I've seen some, um, some animations online, but I included the map for you of the spread of the plague over time. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. But what's weird is it's patchy. It skipped over areas entirely and then might have revisited them 10 years later mm-hmm. or might have skipped them forever. But it, it marches northward in Europe. Boom, boom, boom. It sweeps across northern Africa and the Middle East. It doesn't seem to have hit India too bad. But China, Asia, Europe, northern Africa got decimated. Actually, worse than decimated because decimated means 10% die. Oh, right. It does sound like a much more horrible word, but that's actually what it means. Here's a weird thing. We don't know how many people died. But we knew what the climate was doing in the 1300s. Yeah. But who was there to keep records? The priests died more often than regular people because priests were taking care of dead people. The priests were also the people who kept records. Oh, good point. So it's marching across Europe. They know it's coming. And they still have no idea what causes it. And how could they? They didn't have germ theory of disease. They didn't know what contamination was. They didn't know what bacteria were. They didn't know what viruses were. They didn't know anything. They didn't even know about washing hands. You know, how flies spread disease and had no clue. I mean, the Middle Ages would have been gross. So incredibly disgusting, you would not want to ever live there, especially in a city. I wouldn't have dreamt of it. They were filled with filth. I mean, garbage, human waste, filth, just fetid. I mean, the 
the uh, the story. I, I listened to the Irish History podcast. I love this guy, Finn DeWire. He's describing Dublin two or three hundred years ago and how bad everything stank, especially in backyards. Because what you do in your backyard, that's where you threw all your potty water oh. for decades, for a century. Oh, <laughs> you imagine on a hot day and then it rains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that is that is the state of your average city Oof. in Europe for centuries. Squalid. People literally dropping like flies. Tuberculosis, salmonella, different poxes. I mean, you name it. And you could die from it. Just bleh. Right. So, they had no idea. And yet, this was yet another thing. But this thing was different because it killed 50% of the people that came down with it. Well, even for the people who survive, would it have really, I, I can imagine it only would really affect your quality of life and your health for the future. Yeah, I l- imagine a lot of people died over months because of things like gangrene. Right. Because if you've got a giant swelling in your groin or your armpit, well, it's going to fester and that material is going to die. If the initial shock and infection doesn't get you, you might get it later. So, yeah, ugh, it's awful. Anyway. This um, disease is new, but that's, I just said new. It wasn't a new disease. It was the latest round of this disease. It had appeared in history multiple times, but this was a bad one. Right on the heels of a massive population expansion and a massive increase in trade networks. Because trade is good. Trade, get, trade makes money. People are much better off when they're trading with other people. But those trade networks spread this disease. Mm. It's caused by, we now know, a bacillus, a rod-shaped bacterium called Ursinia pestis. It's named after a disciple of Louis Pasteur. Ursine, I think, was his name. And he figured it out studying in Hong Kong in 1894. Whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't know what caused the plague until 1894. Yeah, that's a long time later. Yep. We didn't know what caused the plague until 1894. Wow. And he he doing some experiments from there. It's other people that realize that, hey, you know, there are these rodents over here that are resistant to the plague and these other rodents that aren't. And the ones that are resistant, they kind of like have a slow brewing sort of an infection. So it never really goes away. And these other rodents, they'll... Increase the number and then get wiped out by the plague. And then increase the number and then get wiped out by the plague. Hmm. And so there was a continual, basically a, a plague cultivation in this area. And it jumped a bunch of people in Hong Kong. But even then, we did not know that the medieval plague was caused by Ursinia pestis until the year 2010. What? This is when we've, we more or less finally proved... If you can prove anything in science, yeah, this bacterium causes the thing we called plague. We thought it for a hundred years, but it wasn't until we were able to pull plague or Ascinia pestis DNA out of the tooth plaque on plague victims. So go to a plague pit, right? A lot of cities. They oh just wow! Dig a giant pit and just throw all the dead people in there. Bring out your dead, sort of thing. Right. And throw all the people in there and just cover them over. Because when you have so many people dying, your medical system is completely overwhelmed. There's nothing you can do about it. 
there's no time for funerals. There's no time for crying. Just put the person in there and try to get on with life. And hopefully you don't die too. But they go and scrape the dental calculus, callus calculus, what thing is called, the, 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 the plaque on the teeth. And they're able to pull the DNA of this bacterium from bodies in the plague pits and not find it in other bodies. That was a, another clue. Incredible. It was only 10 years ago. Mm. And so now we have pretty good handle on this thing called Black Death, except we still don't know hardly anything. <laughs> we don't know what it was spread by. I mean, you, you heard, right? It was rats. Rats spread the plague. Yeah, except that doesn't explain how fast it spread. Oh. And a lot of other species can catch the plague. In fact, after the first big plague pandemic in the 1300s, the first one of the 1300s, most of the sheep were dead. There was a crisis because they ran out of wool because so many sheep died of the plague. What? <laughs> right. And marmots catch it and cows can catch it and lots of species can catch it. So yeah, rats are a problem, but they're not necessarily the problem. And that's something we're just realizing that now. And the way this works is it's really insidious. When a flea is infected with Ursinia pestis, its intestines get blocked with bacteria. Oh. And it gets hungry. And so it starts biting like crazy. Ugh. And that is probably what triggered the entire epidemic was hungry fleas. Mm. Not only do they get hungry, start biting like crazy, but because they keep biting, their stomachs are getting full and full and full. And so they regurgitate. Oh. And that mixes the bacteria into whatever they're biting. Yeah. And so it's insidious. It's like zombie fleas almost. Wow. But also lice can spread the plague apparently. You said lice? Lice. Yeah. Most people had lice. It, they, I mean, fighting these things, no one conquered lice until they invented DDT essentially. Everyone had lice to some degree. And it was a constant thing and you had to constantly you know, clean and wash and comb, et cetera, et cetera. There's no way to get rid of them. We had no method of getting rid of them, only keeping them under control, sort of, between the fleas and the lice and the rats, et cetera, et cetera. What, 100 million people died in Europe? 200 million people? We don't know. Was it 30% of the population? Was it 60% of the population? We don't know. But entire towns were wiped out. Right. A lot of towns, like, like, most of the little teeny towns, gone. No longer in existence. And there was an unbelievable shifting of, of land ownership. After all these people died, the survivors inherited land that they never thought they were going to inherit. Like, woohoo, we got land. Land got cheap because there's fewer people. But because there's fewer people, wages went up. You said their body weight went up? No, wages. 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 They were getting paid more for their effort. And land was cheaper. I mean, this is a fantastic, fantastic event. For the average person, it destroyed the old economic system of feudalism. Wow. Yeah. Good for them, I guess. <laughs> but May 1347 it hits Constantinople. October of 1347 hits Sicily. June of 1348 it hits England. That's how fast it spread. 1353 is finally getting up into um, central Russia. So, you know, four or five years later, it's getting up into some of the more far-flung areas. But it made it all the way to Iceland. I read, a, read one of the papers that are linked. They speculate that the, the Icelandic exploration of the New World was halted because of the plague. Wow. So, 
if that hadn't happened, we might be speaking Icelandic today. Weird. Right. Have you, have you ever heard of the, uh, the word quarantine? <laughs> Just a, maybe uh, once or twice. <laughs> okay. That means 40 days. That's how long a ship, when it came into one of these medieval ports, would be held up in port. 40 days you'd be sitting on that ship to make sure that no one on that ship had the plague. Well, it was 30 days when they started and they bumped it up to 40 days. In fact, a lot of the, um, you're talking about Venice, um, Messina, Marseille, uh, Genoa, Naples, uh, Rome, a lot of these really important trading centers were wiped out and never rose to prominence again. Hmm. Except the Renaissance started and people debate what started the Renaissance. Oh, it was the plague. It wasn't the plague. It was the influx of Greek scholars during, you know, fleeing the plague and blah, blah, blah. Who, who knows? I'll let people argue about that. But the Renaissance kicked in after the plague years, except the plague never ended. It kept going. Every 10 years or so, there would be another wave of the plague, but people stopped caring. <sighs> it just became part of life in a fatalistic sort of, ah, it might get me or not. Right. Wow. But each wave was less bad than the last wave. Well, there were less people to wipe out. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but people that got sick, fewer of them died. Mm. And fewer people would get sick. And so, there's a couple things maybe happening here. Either, if you're only bit by one flea, let's say, that's a plague-infested flea, your body might mount an immune response and start generating some antibodies. Ten years, so essentially you just got inoculated. Ten years later, you get exposed to it again and you don't even get sick. Or maybe you're one of the 50% of the people that recovered from it. Okay. So, there might be antibodies in the population. Or it might be that the plague bacterium is getting weaker because of mutation accumulation. Hmm. I don't know. That's a very interesting thought. Maybe a little bit of all the above too. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all these things, which makes the science of epidemiology very difficult because things are really complicated. So, in 1722, a famous author named Daniel Defoe, who wrote the book Robinson Crusoe, which is an amazing book, a Christian book. I mean, just a fantastic book of this guy who basically comes to faith, to real faith, because of his struggles being marooned on a deserted island. But he also wrote a book called A Journal of the Plague Year. And it is about the London Plague, the Great London Plague of 1665 to 1666. So, 60 years later, he's writing about this, but he was not there and yet is written in the first person. And so, it's a little confusing because he couldn't have seen these things. He was a little boy. He could have seen them, but he, could, he didn't, didn't experience this really for himself. So, people think maybe he grabbed his uncle's journal and turned it into a first-person book. So, there's a little arguing over the historicity of it. Right. But this book, I listened to it on, on LibriVox. It is shocking. It is amazing. It is terrifying. Hmm. The number of people that died, the piles of rats that died. Look, just looking at the, uh, the mortality reports, which were re reported through uh, one of the parishes. There'd be a parish where there's like, you know, a thousand dead people one day and the next parish is none. But you could, using those records, they could watch the epidemic sweep through the city over a year. And places that were free of the plague would get it. And the people that had it early, they would recover. Mm. And oh, man. So, they could actually track the spread of this, this bacterium through a large population, which is really amazing. But we still haven't answered how it spreads. Oh, of course. Might be by, by flea bites. We call that the bubonic plague. 
and it's bad. Maybe 50% of people die. But there's another form of it. It's a form that infects your lungs. It's called the pneumonic plague. And the pneumonic plague kills probably 90% of the people that catch it. And it apparently is spread from person to person through aerosols. In the same way that there was a debate about COVID-19, is it passing water droplets, which would be well filtered out with a mask and where six feet of separation would make a lot of sense? Or is it aerosolized, where it will float in the air for a long time, and therefore what you don't want it to be is in an enclosed place with a sick person? And it doesn't matter how far you away you are, if you're in the same enclosed airspace, that virus is going to hang around and get you. Hmm. So bubonic versus pneumonic is very similar. But there's another form of the plague, septicemic. If this gets into your bloodstream, you're almost certain to die. And so I'm guessing pneumonic and septicemic are similar. It's just one's a more extreme form. And once it's in your bloodstream, you're a goner. But the the way this works is, I mean, you could be go to sleep healthy and be dead the next morning from the plague. Or you could be exposed to it, slowly get sick, and then die in a week. I would much rather die in my sleep than die a horrific, nasty, infectious, rotting death over a long period of time. <laughs> you sure? You don't want to take that option? <laughs> no. The Black Death reshaped the world, probably ecologically reshaped the world. It changed economics. It changed education. It changed people's appreciation and approach to God. It changed the power of the Catholic Church. It had something to do with the Protestant Reformation. It was one of the great world-shaping events, but it wasn't the first. The plague of Justinian, Emperor Justinian, 541 AD, appears to have been Ursinia pestis. We also found evidence in the Bronze Age and even as far back as what they call the Neolithic which is an early post-flood time period before the Bronze Age, we see evidence of Arsenia pestis in the human population. Wow. So this has been going on for a long time, and it has shaped people. In fact, probably natural selection, the people that were most susceptible to it are dead. And the people alive today, we've probably been naturally selected. Now, there's arguing over which genes might have been selected. I mean, the one SLC45A2, which is the gene that, is most associated with skin color is also associated with uh, survival advantage for the plague. What? Skin color? So it had this gene has some other function and it, we know it does it's expressed in, in places like in the, in the uh, stomach lining. So we know it's a spillover effect. It affects skin color, but it's not really what the primary role of the gene is. There's also some immune system genes. And I watched a documentary not too long ago. I think I'll wrap up with this. Yeah. Okay. They were looking at, a uh, small English town. And there's people there today that are descended from people that lived in the plague. And they know that some people survived. Like there's one woman, every one of her children died of the plague and her husband died of the plague. And she never even got sick. Well, she got remarried and some of her descendants still live in that town today, 700 years later. And so they're like, oh, well, let's look at a gene. And so they, they look at their DNA and they find this one particular gene which a lot of these people have. And it's also a gene. It just happens to be that if you carry this, you're more likely to survive HIV. And they're like, look at that. Natural selection brought this gene to the fore. The problem is the statistics are incredibly weak. It's really a bad argument because just because you have that gene, you probably don't have it from your ancestors that lived 700 years ago. In fact, you probably have 
none of your ancestors' DNA. Yeah, I remember you saying that when we were going through the genes. Episodes. Yeah, that's pretty early in, in Equinox. Probably a year ago we talked about that. Mm-hmm. But you don't have an unlimited number of genetic ancestors. You have a couple hundred to a thousand. And you go back 700 years, you have a million or a billion ancestors in your family tree. The probability of you in- inheriting DNA from that person is pretty close to zero. And if you find this gene in a bunch of people in this area, well, okay, maybe, but maybe not. So statistically, I think the argument is a total wash. However, if you wipe out 50% of the population, clearly there are going to be genetic factors associated with survival. So clearly we're descended from the people that survived. And if those genes are affected then, they're probably also still prevalent in the population today. Just we haven't been able to figure it out. So it's an enduring mystery. Hmm. That that has always been a weird and unsettling story of history. Horrifying. Mm-hmm. COVID nineteen is nothing. So going back to the beginning with the origins. Yes. You mentioned that it may have come from the Mongolians and or it originated out that direction. Do we know anything about the impact it made outside of Europe? Yeah, it probably had a huge role to play in the reduction in power of the Mongolian Empire, Mm -hmm. which at one point in time was bashing on the doors of Vienna and was about to capture Vienna. And once they did that, nothing would have stopped them from conquering all of Europe. But then sometime later, we have this thing called plague. It also went eastward into China. So it doesn't look like it started in China. No one is sure. People have all these hypotheses, all these ideas. This town, it came from a marmot or this place over here. No one is really certain. All we know is that the, the first real record we have is in the Crimea in 1346, 1347. That's all we know. Fascinating. Yeah. Have there ever been any other pandemics remotely as impactful as this one that you know of? Anything predating Christ? Anything between Christ and the bubonic plague? I would say yes, but I would also say they're probably more localized. Hmm. It was the trading networks that allowed this to spread across the known world. Yeah. And in ancient times, yeah, there were trading networks, but they were slow. And so none that I'm aware of, though there are pestilences recorded all sorts of different times in, in different places. And the other thing is if like, you know, one country or one region or one city is being decimated by something, they don't know what's happening outside because news is so slow. Yeah. So we don't, we just don't know. Okay. Well, good episode. N- not at nearly as exciting or as, uh, you know, thrilling as something like the depths of space and clusters of galaxies, but I'll take it. Well, Until next yeah, time. But see the, <laughs> the nerd in, the nerd in me actually exults in this massive wave of death. It's not exciting, but it's fascinating and interesting. Yeah, totally. And it tells us about the human condition. Anytime you're studying the human condition, that's something to study because it's just like, I mean, put yourself in those shoes and imagine what it was like. Those sorts of questions. How would you have behaved? Right. Would you have burned 2000 Jews? like they did in one particular city, Mm. 2,000, because they blame them on the plague. Mm. What kind of a human would you have been? That's the question. I love asking questions like that. Interesting point. Mm. I I didn't realize how long it has been since I thought about the Black Death in general. It's probably been since school that I really thought about it. Mm. Do you know of anything, I know this is getting into the weeds here, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but do you know anything that would explain werewolfism 
or something like that where you know people have a reaction and uh, rabies you know foam at the mouth and go crazy and has there anything been able to explain weird conditions medical conditions throughout the middle ages that would explain a lot of the the weird stories there has been a particular gene associated with at high high enough frequency people in Romania where some people think that the vampire legend comes from it's just a a iron processing problem that makes people crave iron rich foods bloody meat not things like that yeah and it causes their gums to recede and their lips to pull back and that would be pretty gruesome looking and they crave blood <laughs> this has been suggested as the origin of um of vampires yeah I, again i don't know and just because yeah you find a couple of people in some place that has that you don't know how frequent it was or what the real correlation is but it's an interesting question i don't know about werewolves huh Well, thanks for joining us on this episode's quest. If you found this topic interesting, you could consider sharing it with a family member or a friend. This episode's links and show notes are available in most podcast players with the show, but you can also find them at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 59. And if you want to get Equinox Plus, that is our bonus episodes feed for the members. It is available from Patreon, so you can get a link to that page where you can sign up in the show notes as well. And you should also check out Dr. Robert Carter's other project, Biblical Genetics. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the videos and you can jump into the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or uh, take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. That was actually good. It wasn't an hour and a half. No, no. And it wasn't super technical. In fact, I was deliberately avoiding technical words and statistics. Ah, yes, yes. You did a good job. Yeah. I was, I was worried because that, that actually, it, it, it chops down all the things you could say. Oh, 45% of the people or 6,221 deaths in April of 1842, you know, but they, who cares? People don't want to know those numbers, I think. <laughs> no, right. Well, good job then.